everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. You get a birdie. You get a birdie. You get a birdie. Even Dawson gets a birdie. Welcome to the 2023 U.S. Open. At least round one there at Los Angeles Country Club. A venue that hadn't hosted the U.S. Open since, well, 75 years ago. And there were plenty of low scores to be found including let's go Ricky Fowler out there atop the leaderboard with a fantastic round one. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and company. I'm your host, the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parch III. Of course, I'm joined inside these Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo. We got a great show lined up for you today. A jam-packed show. Got four guests. James Yasko will join us at straight up 7 o'clock to talk Houston Astros baseball. Injury issues and the state of the team. We'll do that with the man from the Lima Time Time podcast. That'll be at 7 o'clock at 7.30. Ryan Schumpert joins us here. He covers the Tennessee Volunteers baseball team. He's going to join us to help us give a preview behind the enemy lines, if you will, for Saturday night's College World Series opener between the Vols and the LSU Tigers. The opener for those two teams. Obviously, the College World Series opens up this afternoon. At 8 o'clock, Jacques Doucet from WAFB and Baton Rouge. He'll give us a preview from the LSU perspective. And then a treat for you in hour number three, a man considered to be one of the founders of the 3-4 defense and considered by many to be the greatest defensive line coach in college history. Pete Jenkins will join us. We'll talk about his career and the upcoming Louisiana line camp, which will be down at Nichols next weekend. So we've got a jam-packed show for you, obviously. We'll get to the Astros as well, losing last night to the Washington Nationals. But we got to start off with the U.S. Open. D'Lo, Ricky Fowler, Ricky Fowler. It's hard not to root for Ricky. Well, that is the case. And he is also, you know, happens to be the guy I've followed in the PGA Tour for several years now. And I'll be honest with you, it's been a rough several years. Um, and He like, had those moments. He had a few years there where he looked like he was the guy who was the, the, the best guy, the best golfer on tour. Not to have broken through to win a well, major. He was, he was next up. I mean, he if, was next and, up. And now we're going back. We're going back farther. You know, maybe maybe a decade or so. But yeah, in, in the mid to you know when he, of course, most remember Ricky coming on the scene with kind of the flashy outfits. He wore the all orange, you know, with the orange pants, and he would wear the uh, the hot pink and stuff. And that's right, the Puma. Yeah, and he kind of had this surfer vibe to him with the long flowy hair, and he's this kid out of Oklahoma State, and 
Um, that's why I started being a fan of him because I was a kid at the time, and I remember he went to the Zurich Classic, and my dad and I went, and we followed him around for a day, you know, on the course, and I was like, man, this guy's cool. I want to be a fan of his, and so that's kind of when he became my favorite golfer, and uh, you know, the career looked like it was on an upward trajectory for a while, and it was. He was one of the hot young stars in the game, and you know, won some tournaments, won the Players Championship, mm-hmm. notably. That's his biggest win, and and. Felt like he was going to break through and be the next, you know, Rory McIlroy type guy, Jordan Spieth type guy, and it just never quite materialized. So here we are. However, injuries started later, to slow him down a little bit, not to the extent that they did Jason Day. A little bit, yeah. But and, he got nicked up a little bit, but then he just kind of lost his game. Yeah, lost and look, his and, he, and, and, he, and he got married and started a family, and like that's it's, you know, kind of been documented or at least speculated that that like that had a little bit of an effect, right? He wasn't. As you know, as many people do, like I think we forget sometimes that people's family, especially a game like golf, right, where there's so much individual preparation that takes place. Mm. And, um, you know, he didn't play quite as well for a long stretch there, and it got really rough. Now, his last win was back at the Waste Management Open, I think back in 2016 or 17, one of those. And he hasn't won a golf tournament since no, then, he, which is hard to believe. It's hard to believe. He was the PGA Tour Rookie of the Year when he came onto the, the scene in 2010. And really, 2014 was the banner year for him. I know you mentioned the Players' Championship. But if you go back and remember, 2014 was he had that great run where he finished tied for second at the U.S. Open, tied for second at the Open Championship, tied for third at the PGA. So so in, in, in a year span, he did not win a major, but he was in the mix top three at three of the four majors and you went this guy's got it like he was people forget about this the the type of buzz that Jordan Spieth had later and then Justin Thomas had Ricky had that but Ricky was also far more appeared to be far more flashy far more the guy for the younger generation yeah he was the marketable I mean he was an advertiser's dream and he still is to an extent right he still does a lot of endorsements and and also, I think it's it should be kind of documented as well. A guy who's really struggled the last three, four years on tour, but has always remained. They've always talked about how he's staying after signing autographs. He's be, he's remained the marketable guy that he's always been. Mm-hmm. But it's tough when you're not competing at the highest level, right? And you're not winning tournaments to 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 still have that level of respect. And I think some people, as happens with guys like this, have gotten tired out of it and go, why is this guy being shown so much, this and that, and he's not even good anymore, right? So people start to – I think there's a lot of people who really, you know, love and support him, um, like we've mentioned, and then there's a lot of people who kind of get annoyed by him because they go, oh, I don't think he deserves all the attention he gets, right? And that's just kind of how guys who are really profitable and marketable in, in and, and sports And also, get. he hasn't even been able to play – in the U.S. Open, if you remember last year, oh, I year, do. He was an alternate waiting he was on the site, an alternate waiting on site, and didn't get the chance. He was the first alternate, and never got the chance last year. He hasn't played in a U.S. Open since 2020 when he finished tied for 49th. Which, which again, the funny thing about all of, of you know U.S. Open qualifying, and I I mentioned this a couple of weeks back when we first started talking about the U.S. Open, is that it's it's open qualifying. So last year, yeah, he was not eligible. There's certain different ways to qualify, right? If you're top 50 in the World Golf Rankings, I believe it is, and then there's a couple other different things, winning tournaments here and there, of course, exemptions if you're a previous champion, all that type of stuff. But if you don't qualify by any of those methods, then you have to go to qualifying. And so, Correct. you know, those sectional qualifyings take place or regional qualifyings, they think they call them, uh, take place all across the country. It's one round, and if you are in the top however percentage, you go on to the two where you you play 36 holes in one day, 
and the top however many golfers. It depends on how many are in the field and things like that. Make it to the U.S. So you could potentially go to your local qualifier, have a great day at golf, qualify, get in, and then, oh, by the way, you're playing against Ricky Fowler, who's trying to get into the U.S. Open, who happens yeah. to be one of the best golfers. Like, still, of course, relatively one of the best golfers in the world compared to everyone. Um, that happened, yeah, and he was he he missed it by one shot in the, in the qualifier, and then was was waiting as an alternate. I think one player got COVID, and so I think he was the third alternate to start the week. One player got COVID, one player withdrew for an injury, and he was he was waiting. He was literally hitting golf balls on the driving range all day because again, this is a situation where it's not like you you know sometimes you might find out the night before, but this could be a situation where a guy goes to the course, try, you know, warms up and goes, I can't play. You got to play whatever tee time that is. So he's sitting there waiting all day to play and doesn't get a chance to. And it comes full circle all the way to him. Again, we didn't even get into the meat of this yet. The U.S. Open record for the lowest round ever. And it's tied. It's Ricky Fowler, who owned the record by himself for, I think, 22 minutes until Xander Shoffley decided to join him, also shooting 62. And they're atop the board at eight under par. How about the shot he made? Oh, from the ravine or or from the the under the bridge? He pushed his tee shot. Well right. Well right, right? And he was rocking and rolling just in a groove, and he just he just pushes his tee shot to the right. His ball, the best way I can describe this, if you didn't watch the coverage, is that the Los Angeles Country Clubs, they have these little sandy areas. They're not bunkers. They're, they're just like this is like a dugout. They have a word that they kept using, and I'll have to pull it up the word that they used. Um, but Barakanus, I don't, yeah, something. something like that. But essentially, they're kind of he was kind of under a bridge area. He was, he was in between a, in a, a tree and a little bridge area, and it was like sandy. So it is hard to explain. And somehow, from that angle, when you saw it, and you're like, oh no, I, I, that, my, my first reaction was like, oh no, Ricky. Because oh, no. also the, it was the eighth hole, but his seventeenth of the day because he Correct, played the back because he first. started on yeah back nine. So he just pulled out his pitching wedge, calm, cool, collected, and hit it perfectly over every possible hazard because there was trees in front of him too off to the right. So he had to guide. He hit a tree here, had the bridge over here. He's in the sandy Baracus, whatever they're calling it out there on the left coast, and he has to guide the shot. And that approach shot left him 13 feet from another birdie, by the way, his 10th of the day at that point, which he sank on his way to a U.S. Open record 62. So, and I heard a couple, I was listening to PGA Tour radio a lot yesterday and some of the nuggets, by the way. So we talked a lot about Ricky Fowler because, you know, I, I forced Because we want to. And you did. You were <laughs> you were a fan of it as well, so you didn't hesitate <laughs> to didn't want allow to. me to. But. All over, we heard about this course all week. Guess what? It did not show its head today. I mean, it did not show itself in the way it was supposed to. I expect it to, though, over the weekend. Now, yes, that's what everything everyone's been kind of saying. Look, they put some pins in some easier spots. They they had a couple tee boxes playing up further than mm-hmm. you know they're they're capable of. Um, and, and the if golf you course, notice, it was as very the day damp. progressed. You didn't have a little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah, because and look. I, I, I get it. I understand. We want to uh, obsess about the scores and everything like that. But the scoring averages in recent years at Brookline was 72.8, and Torrey was 73.7, and Wingfoot was 72.6, and Pebble was 72.7. So I understand that there were 62s out there yesterday. But overall, Los Angeles Country Club was around 71. So it wasn't that far off 
yeah. of what we've had in recent years. Those stroke numbers, you know, you're talking about an average of 156 guys, so there's not going to be a huge difference. It was, it was, it was the lowest first scoring day in a U.S. Open, I believe, ever, um, and if not ever, it was up there. The other thing about it, so 62 is the new record for a U.S. Open mm-hmm. round um, that Ricky and Xander shot. So the first U.S. Open was in 1895, so I saw that was another stat. It took, let's see, what's that, 128 years for someone to shoot 62 in a U.S. Open for the first time, and then it took 22 minutes for the second person to shoot 62 in the mm-hmm. U.S. Open. Just crazy. Now, don't forget... JT shot nine under 63 at Aaron Hills in 2017. So we've had this close before in recent years. It wasn't that long ago. I could go back to Johnny Miller in 1973 at Oakmont with eight under 63 as well, if you'd like. But I do expect, and this is what I told people, all people were disappointed that there wasn't carnage at the U.S. Open, that the course didn't play as brutal as they expected it to. And, And this is what I told people. Expect it to be more difficult as the weekend progresses. Yes, and another thing that happened is, look, and I thought it was kind of ironic. We heard all week about the great, you know, oh, it's in Los Angeles, not typical U.S. Open bad weather. It's going to be great, and it's going to be sunny. It was misty and damp all morning, and misty, damp conditions with the best players in the world, what essentially that does, it softens up the greens. It makes them more receptive. You can kind of stick some shots where you want to, especially with wedges. That's going to lead to low scoring. And yes. so, you know, sometimes, I mean, that's just, that's how it is. They're hoping the course, and I heard some course, it's so funny too, like the course officials, it's like it's like they've been defeated. It's like they're a heavyweight boxer who just got roughed up in the first round because they want this course to, to handle golfers, right? They want to show that it's a great test. They're hoping the sun comes out a little earlier and is out a little longer because there were a lot of clouds throughout and it just never mm-hmm. quite firmed up. They're hoping that's going to make things a lot firmer. They're going to move some pins into some much tougher spots, and they're going to move some tee boxes back. I think you're going to see a couple of those par threes that we talked about at the beginning of the week play the numbers that are on the card because they moved the tee boxes up a little bit. They wanted to make it a little bit more accessible in the first round. And, uh, yeah, mostly the players, look, a lot of them were surprised that the course was as gettable as it was. A lot of them were surprised that Ricky and Xander put down that number. But they also said, you know, look, that's the easiest, most that's the best possible conditions it could have been on Thursday. So, there's not going to be another round like that. And and Correct. worth mentioning, not only Ricky and Xander at the top of the board, we've got some interesting guys. Dustin Johnson, 600, DJ's just a couple back. right there lurking. Rory is 5-under, which Rory's had you know bad starts to majors. He's his, he got off to a good start He yesterday. shot a front 9-30, which is his best 9-hole score in a major ever, by the way. Yeah, and so a lot of big names lurking. DeChambeau's only three under. He's only five shots back. Phil Mickelson mm-hmm. was under par yesterday, of course, in search of the career Grand Slam, which he had a cha- he he had a great start. I think he got to three under pretty early, but he kind of struggled down the stretch. But a lot of big names in the mix. Um, in and the other thing too, Ricky and Xander both going to have to play in the afternoon wave today, and they're both you know that's they're thinking the sun's going to come out, dry things out, and it could be very difficult for the afternoon wave. And and that's what's always kind of the great stabilizer a lot of times in golf tournaments and in particular in majors is that hey on Thursday you have a great day because you either teed off early or teed off late but then you have to flip it the next day and it tends not to be the same so it's going to be a fascinating watch of what happens at the U.S. Open and look people are never happy the crowd that hates the U.S. Open because they hate the course 
causing carnage to all the golfers. Well, they're happy because there's low scores. But the people that love the U.S. Open because it causes carnage are not happy. So there's never a situation where people are are, are happy about it. I and mean, I, I, I'm happy because I know that the course will tend to correct itself. Yeah. Now, I will say, like, coming in, I just was, I was a little skeptical of the super wide fairways and a couple of these short par fours that I thought guys were going to get after and that kind of showed itself. I kind of took everyone's word for it with the with the way that how hard it was going to be and the and I was uh, you know I guess I should have went with my original instinct but yeah I would I'll tell you this I'd be surprised if the leader at the end of today is I don't think the leader's anywhere past 10 under after the end of the day and I don't know if the winner of this tournament's going to be any better than 10 12 under at most which again that's still way down below what we would expect the US Open winner mm. to be but I don't think a guy's going 20 under I don't think anybody's repeating nope. the 62 I don't think we see another 62 I don't see think we see maybe we see another 64 maybe um, and again this is a par 70 so that would be 6 under but um yeah I I think that was the best most ideal conditions and by the way the people now there's not a ton they can do you know day to day as opposed to pre- preparing this course in the coming months but they saw the scores. They're going to make this thing as challenging as they can the rest of the way. Oh, you, you, you know exactly that they've been working all night, late into the night to uh, remedy the course and make things slightly more difficult. Uh, but you do have some low numbers there, and we'll see what happens today at the Los Angeles Country Club. We got to take a timeout when we return here on RP3 and Company. Houston Astros drop a series finale to the Nationals and do so in extra innings. We'll recap it for you next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Houston Astros were going for the sweep last night there at Minute Maid against the Washington Nationals, and they had won it in dramatic fashion, so much so that the skipper of the Nationals in Game 2 of this series got someone to print off a photo for him to use in a press conference. But they found themselves in a dogfight yesterday and one that they lost 4-1. to one. Lane Thomas and Ruiz each hit RBI singles in a three-run 10th inning that carried the Nationals past the Astros 4-1 on Thursday night to prevent the sweep. Ruiz homered off closer Ryan Presley, leading off the ninth to break a scoreless tie. But pinch hitter Diaz tied it in the bottom half with a two-out RBI single against Hunter Harvey. But... The Shrows bullpen decided, we're just going to have an off night. We're not going to pitch well. And sometimes that just happens. And last night was exactly how that happened. Because Thomas comes in and gives the Nationals a 2-1 lead with a one-out single off of Phil Maton in the 10th. And Garcia singles. And Candelario was hit by a pitch. 
And then Corey Dickerson drew a bases loaded walk. We can go ahead and say that's a kind of gross performance by the bullpen. We can go and just submit to that series of unfortunate events. Home run with your closer. And then hitting a batter and walking another one and giving up a single. Correct? Yes. I would yeah. like to to give credit, though, to Brian Abreu and Hector Neris, who both had holds and both were setting this up to be, you know, pretty good. Well, I guess not holds because they didn't have a lead. It's um, you don't have to innings. defend the bullpen. We can we, it's okay. You're, you're so sensitive about the Astros bullpen. Like you, you, you <laughs> no automatically luck. you interrupt me to come to their defense as if you're on their payroll as their PR department. No, this time though, I felt you baited me into it, and I saw you kind of like were giving that little nod. You wanted me to jump in there, and I was you know you, you always me to agree defend with you. them. Always defend them. You know what a closer's job is to not do. D'Lo? No, look, I'm, I, I I'm more concerned with I'm more concerned with Presley than than a lot of things right now. I will say that um, yeah. because it hasn't looked. Now I he, will say he's always inconsistent, right? Yeah, he always has these not, moments, but this year's been an uh, one of those years. You could say I I don't even know if he's been inconsistent. The one thing Presley's been really good at the past few years is when he's given up runs. He's usually done it in games where he happened to have an extra cushion to use it in. That's correct. Uh, and I almost think that's on purpose, right? I think he's a guy who's going to, you know, pitch to contact a little bit more often if he goes into the ninth inning with a three-run lead as opposed to trying to really have his best stuff. Um, but it's a little concerning. Now, he's he's going in there in a non-safe situation, which I don't know why it's so weird for closers to pitch in non-safe situations, but they hate it, it seems like. It's I a mean, mental thing. Right? Yeah, it's certainly. Yeah. You, you got that adrenaline, that kind of juice flowing to, to go, I'm going to shut this game down, and this – case you go okay I'm getting three outs and then we got to go score it's different yeah but um that was a little concerning and and you know it was cool for them to fight back though Yonder Diaz it was a clutch I mean two outs and he drives in the run to tie the game that was cool to see in the bottom of the ninth and you felt like maybe they had the momentum there but then you know and in the 10th it starts weird with the extra inning rule um and then it feels like sometimes Again, you bring the infield in when that runner gets to third base, and then that's what kind of that was a base hit. I'm not sure that ball gets caught regardless, that ground ball that got through. But it always kind of feels like, man, now we just gave up an extra base runner as opposed to maybe just making the out at first base, and it's because of the extra runner. I don't know. And then after that, things kind of got out of hand. They they give up a couple more runs and they lose the game. So it, And and here here's the other thing. It'd be helpful if you scored more than one run. It's another one of these situations. We've talked about this before with James Yasko and with Brett Chancey when we've had them on. And when we talk about what are some of the things that you look at as an Astros fan, and they go, there there are days where they just can't hit. And they got seven hits yesterday, three of them courtesy of Kyle Tucker. Two of them from McCormick. So two guys contributed for five of their seven hits. Lots of offers in that lineup against the Washington Nationals pitching. Yeah, they threw Mackenzie Gore, who's one of their best young he's guys. He's okay. He's okay. He's not Clayton Kershaw. He's got an ERA in the threes. Okay, I he's think not he's Verlander. He's not Garrett Cole. Stop. I would. Yeah, no. The offense overall is. They struck out ten times. No, they and again, like. And we've done it to this point where we go, well, it's Bregman. He's going to figure it out. And and I know, I think Miguez got a little upset about Alex Bregman the past couple of days. But <laughs> yeah, you know. it is it is to the point now where it's like, man, it's June. It's mid-June. Like, I'd like to have seen him go on a tear. And I know we had a little bit of a hot stretch. What was that? Towards the end of May. 
Um, but but it felt like a tease. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't gotten yeah, but, it going. And Altuve, again, I, I'll give Altuve more time than, than what it is right now. And he had a couple of big moments right when he came back. So, you know, he's still hitting right above 250 and things like that. But those guys have got to get it going at some point, especially when you don't have Jordan Alvarez coming back any time in the next probably month, maybe two. Uh, you, you need some production from some of your big guys. Now, thankfully, Kyle Tucker's at least trying to shoulder some of the load, it looks like. But... Yeah, we'll see. I think this weekend against Cincinnati, though, that's a hot team. It's going to be – look, if the Astros aren't ready to play, that Cincinnati team's coming in here with a lot of confidence. And they're exciting, right? They and, are. And and they're feeling good about themselves because, as we've established, the central divisions in both the National and the American League are trash. So 500 or below could possibly win those divisions. We're embellishing a little bit, but we're not too far off there. So – the Reds are going to come to town. They're going to be playing with a lot of confidence. Yeah, and I actually think somebody in both those divisions separates a little bit. Um, I do kind of agree with Bob Nightingale. I think Milwaukee does it in the NL side. But I, I still think like look, Cincinnati's going to be right there. And, uh, you know, if St. Louis ever figures things out, I think maybe they've just dug themselves too big oh. of a hole. Um, and in the AL side, I, I think it's going to be Minnesota, but we'll see. I think one of those teams ends up at least, you know, winning around, I'd say, 85 to 90 games. But... Right now, yeah, no, it's it's anybody's for the taking, and it's got a team like the Reds, teams like the Cubs sitting there going, man, we thought we were out of it, but we're not. We're not out of it. Like, if we play good baseball for one month, again, that's, that's you know, and Matt Degg said this throughout the, the baseball season, if you if you give up on it, you never know when that winning streak's right around the corner. It's, it's a game like that. Look at the Oakland A's. They just won seven in a row last week, so. Yeah, and to your point, Minnesota is the only team in the AL Central above 500. They're 35 and 34. As for the NL Central... We have one team above 500 as well. That's the Pittsburgh Pirates at 34 and 33. And it's June 16th. But still plenty of baseball left to be played. You'll hear that opener against the Reds at Minute Maid right here on the game tonight. You got to make sure to tune in for that. A certain producer extraordinaire should be in attendance for that game. Is that correct? Yes. JP's on the mound too. Oh, get to see see your boy. Get to see your boy. That should be fun. How fun is it going to be when you see JP go out there and give you great seven innings and the Nashville's bullpen blows the game? Um, you'll get a text if that's what happens. <laughs> I'll be sure. driving in through northwest Arkansas and we'll get a text from you, aren't I? We'll get a text from you tonight and you're going to be like, ugh. <laughs> no, look, uh, get, they're giving away some type of Astro, like Altuve replica jersey thing. we, we got to get there early enough for that. Oh, we'll give you an bud. update on that. Yeah, let's, let's make that happen big. today. Let's Gotta make that make happen. happen. Now look, it's a t- you know, it's going to be a drive, and then you know it's you know traffic and things like that. We're ho- I'm hoping we're everything's going to work out. Got to get checked in, everything like that. But w- yeah, I have plans for it. Yes, it's going to be a great weekend for you, bud. Enjoy yourself. You've earned it. You've earned it. We got to take a time out. When we return, though, here in RP3 and Company, we're going to s- remain on the diamond. We're just going to shift our focus up to Omaha, Nebraska, where I'll be headed starting today. I'll eventually get there on Saturday. LSU, Tennessee, Jay Johnson and a couple players spoke to the media yesterday. You'll hear from them next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette. 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 
little team meeting um, right after the SEC tournament and, uh, you know, got together and just, you know, we just said five games. Just give us five games to get here and uh, play your best baseball that you possibly can. Um, forget about all the stuff that happened in the season. Just focus on the present right now. Um, give us five games and to get here. And, and I think everything will kind of just take care of itself as soon as we get here. So um, you gotta, we got to keep this um, momentum keep uh, forward. And like I said, I think it's just going to take care of itself as soon as we start playing. All-American Dylan Cruz for the LSU Tigers talking about, hey, we should have to go out there and play. I like that mentality. It's a veteran mentality. It's a guy who's possibly going to be the number one or the number two overall pick in the amateur draft mentality. He's always carried himself very well. I remember interviewing him at Media Day a few years back going, wow, this guy doesn't seem young. guy seems old. In a good way. Like, some guys are just built for it. Some guys and girls are just built for getting on campus and ascending quickly to being the person, right? The man or the woman. Like, some people just have it. Dylan has that. And they gear up to take on Tennessee Saturday night. The fourth game of the College World Series, the last game of the opening round, primetime. All eyes will be on LSU Tennessee there at Charles Schaub Field. Schwab, Schwab Field. There we go. I wanted to call it the other one. I did not. And I did not do that with Todd Walker. More importantly, that's what I avoided. But see... You made Todd Walker laugh because Todd Walker did the same thing. So you shouldn't feel bad about that from the other day. Because you made Todd Walker laugh because Todd has done it himself. I had forgotten until you brought it up again, <laughs> so thanks. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> uh, Tigers already in Omaha practicing, getting ready to go, getting ready to try to make a deep run and try to bring back a national championship. It's been a while for the Tigers. Heck, it's been a while since they even been to Omaha. Six years? That's the longest stretch in program history since the first year Skip took them back in 1986, I do believe. So think about that. LSU's always in the mix. It's, you know, most programs, oh, it's been six years. Oh, that's not, I think Oral Roberts hadn't been there since the 70s. Wake Forest hadn't been there since 1955. LSU hadn't been there in six years. Sky's falling. It's a different mentality, right? It's a different standard at LSU. Just is. Always has been. And it's been that way for a long time. And getting here and finally ending that drought, so to speak, is makes Jay Johnson the second-year skipper of the LSU Tigers, extremely proud, especially of this group and their ability to be able to bring LSU back to Omaha. Yes, uh, very proud of our team this year. Uh, obviously a great collection of talent, but they became a team. Uh, we were very deliberate in how we did that. We've had great player leadership. And to have the expectations on them uh, to be the number one team in the country preseason, hold that for 11 or 12 weeks, and, and not have a losing week the entire season uh, speaks to their consistency and their, their talent. I believe we're playing the best uh, baseball that we have all year right now. 
and uh, very proud of being here. And uh, with that being said, we're highly motivated to continue our streak of our best baseball right now and um, can't wait to get on a field and uh, very proud and very honored to bring this group of players to Omaha. Jay has been to Omaha before, took Arizona there. So he's familiar and he knows what it takes to get a team there, but he also understands that getting to Omaha is one thing. Winning the whole thing is a whole other thing because it is a grind. It is a marathon. You just can't win a couple of games to get there. You got to win a lot more. And you have to have the right mentality. And in particular, the teams that make runs in Omaha that win national championships, those are the teams that are close. Those are the teams that are like brothers, a close-knit team and Johnson spoke on that as well. Yeah, I won't take uh, any uh, credit for the goofiness, that's for sure. Um, Now, I really want players to be themselves, but to become a team. And I think um, that's been a big part of why I think this has worked, is um, there was talented players here um, that were going to be coming into their own, that we tried to give them a development template but to, for them to develop, they have to be at the field. And for them to develop as a team, they have to be together. So part of that, they have to take ownership in. And so if you let them be themselves, obviously within reason with you know class and character and all those types of things, I've always just found the buy-in goes up tremendously. Um, yeah, so as far as Travinsky t-shirts and all that, it's like, I mean, what? <laughs> We're good. Like they, they could just, as long as it's appropriate, I'm good with it. <laughs> I, I I like that response because he's letting his guys be themselves, but yet they still feel like a team. And that's sometimes coaches have a hard time doing that, right? They have a hard time letting their guys be individuals in a team concept. But this LSU team feels very much like a team, but they have their individual personalities and they can express themselves. So it's a it's a nice balance that Jay has been able to do with this year's team in particular. It just is. LSU, Tennessee, you'll have that game for you tomorrow night right here on the game. Pre-game will begin at 5.30, first pitch set for 6 o'clock. By the way, Scott Woodward, pretty good at hiring folks. I'm, I'm just going to say, Kim Mulkey, year two, wins a national championship, first one in men's or women's history. Jay Johnson, year two, has the Tigers back in the College World Series. Brian Kelly, year one, won 10 games, went to the SEC championship. It's pretty good. Pretty good at those, that hiring folks, isn't he? Can Jay win a national title in year two? Whew. Can Brian Kelly win one in year two? Whew. Think about that for a second. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, we'll unveil the poll question of the day, read some of your early comments, and wrap up hour number one. That's all next right here on the game. 
This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Before we unveil the poll question of the day, New Orleans Saints are just out there signing as many wide receivers for training camp as possible. Mini camp is done, and we'll recap a little bit of that early next week for you on RP3 and company. But they just keep signing wide receivers, Dawson. They're like, hey, um, have you caught five passes in the NFL? You have? Come on down. You're signed. Hey, are you over there? You may be washed up. You're signed. Hey, are you a converted quarterback into wide receiver? You're signed. Who wants to be a wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints? Come on down because you're getting signed. The big one yesterday that stands out is Lynn Bowden. Now, many of you may remember him in college at Kentucky. He was drafted in the 2020 draft by the Raiders in the third round but then played for the Dolphins and then the Patriots and now has been signed by the Saints. Has a whopping 28 receptions for 211 receiving yards. So there we go. Yeah, unlikely to make the roster. But, I mean, he was a guy who played – he played quarterback. He played kind of wildcat quarterback too. Like it was a – if you remember that Kentucky team ran the ball like a million times a game. Yeah, and he was drafted as a running back by the Raiders – but then was cut. It's kind of a hybrid type guy. It was a third-round pick that they cut. It's like the well, Raiders, the Raiders making, have made some decisions. Oh, they make some that decisions. Haven't worked out. But, um, I mean, he's got a talented skill set. I think it's one of those things. I don't know if he's ever been proficient enough in one category to really kind of stand out and make a roster somewhere. You know, he's, he's, he's kind a of a gadget player, and the Saints do like those guys. Yeah, right? yeah. And I mean, again, I don't know if there really is space on the roster for him, but he's going to compete, and we'll see. I mean, yeah, has a little bit of familiarity with Carr, and so you know, we'll who see. Knows? We'll see, but they're just, just, hey, you think you can play wide receiver? They're doing everything in their ability to, to, to try to have someone take Traquan Smith's job. <laughs> we'll see if it actually happens. Poll question of the day. How do you feel about the record low scores in the first round of the U.S. Open? We know Dawson is upset. He's going to write an angry letter to somebody about this. It, it will be tougher today. Put pins in the bunkers. I believe that's what Dawson would like to see happen. I love it. More birdies or don't have an opinion. Early votes, bud, here. People are split. You're going to have to politics some a little bit here today. All right? 38% say put the pins in the bunkers. 24% say they don't have an opinion. 23% say they love it. More birdies. They can't have enough of the birdies. And 15% say it'll be tougher today. That's what we stand with the results of the poll question of the day. If we don't want to put the pins in the bunkers, I suggest maybe we put four different pins on the on the green, <laughs> and you're not allowed to see the green until you get up there, and so you just got to hit it and hope you pick the pin that actually has the hole. 
But the other ones will just be pins with just grass, there filled in grass. And uh, or, or maybe you just put the pins, what whatever they're calling sand at the Los Angeles Country Club. You know, another idea I have is we put the pin anywhere on the hole, but we don't even – so it could be like behind a tree, and you just don't know. <laughs> the pin could be like – it could be in the clubhouse, like in the bar at the clubhouse. There you don't know where the pin, and you just have to guess. So that could be that could be a way to race. I mean, that could be that, that's something we could do. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen, brother. Keep voting on the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to share them throughout today's show. Hour one, it was good. What a great way to kick off the weekend. Hour number two is going to be even better because we're going to kick it off with James Yasko, the Lima Time Time podcast. That's next right here on The Game. Woo! Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. Everything gonna be alright this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Our number two has arrived here on RP3 and Company. Coming up an hour, half an hour from right now, Ryan Schumpert will join us. He covers the Tennessee Volunteers baseball team and help us give us an idea on what LSU can expect to see tomorrow night in Omaha. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. It's about the U.S. Open. Plenty of low scores yesterday. Plenty of 62s, a pair of them. Played a little bit easier than expected. How do you feel about the record low scores in the first round of the U.S. Open? 37% of you say put pins in the bunkers. 26% say I love it, more birdies. 21% say I don't have an opinion. And 16% of you say it'll be tougher today. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll try to share them throughout today's show. But right now it's time for us to talk Houston Astros baseball. They were going for the sweep last night against the woeful Washington Nationals. But the lineup decided to go O for a bunch, except for Kyle Tucker. Kyle Tucker was like, I'm here. I'm ready to play baseball. Skipper, I'm ready to actually hit the baseball. And Dusty Baker said, thank you. And apparently no one else decided to do that. And then the bullpen had themselves... Not a great night. The first two guys did, as Dawson made sure to point out. But then Presley, who's been shaky, gives up a home run. And then there's the walk, hit, batter nonsense that followed in the 10th. To talk all about the Houston Astros is our good friend, the Houston Chronicle contributor, the co-host of the Lima Time Time podcast, and a man who's always rational when it comes to his fandom with the Astros and with Leeds, James Jasko. James, good morning. How are you? Everything is terrible. This is the worst team ever ever constructed. What What are we actually doing? Oh, wait. No. Okay. Yes, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> how, how you doing, bud? 
I'm fine. I, you know, I, I gave myself a break last night and I watched the U.S. men's national team beat Mexico 3-0. So I, I, I was aware of what was happening with the Astros game. Uh, it was on, uh, it was on mute, but it was on, it was on. And so, and, and so, but no, I very much enjoyed watching, watching the U.S. do their thing. Awesome. So do their thing is, is, Win matches that really don't matter and fail at the World Cup. Is that what you're? Hey, is was, that what you mean? This was the this is the Nations League semifinal. I mean, they're playing in a final on Sunday against Canada. I mean, what? No, no, nothing it means nothing. And, and when you're playing Mexico, it, it means absolutely everything. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can play that game in a Walmart parking lot, and you'd have eighty thousand people throwing tits like at everybody. There is no such thing as a game that does not matter between the U.S. and Mexico. I got you, bud. I got you. I can't wait. I can't wait for Messi to make Americans care about soccer, just like David Beckham did. Um, (laughs) So let's focus first and foremost on the great news that we heard this week about the injured stars of the Houston Astros. So Alvarez got placed on the 10-day IL, and of course now that's going to turn into a couple of months on the IL with the oblique that we find out now. And we also find out that Lance McCullers Jr. has been uh, shut down, that he's going to require surgery, and that's uh, from an injury that was from 611 days earlier. So give me your thoughts about that and the fact that Michael Brantley Jr. still isn't cleared to come back. There's just so many question marks, and 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 we talked about this on the last limit time time, but the Astros do not help themselves when when they refuse to make the trainer available, when they refuse to discuss, you know, not that not that the Astros owe the fans, uh, you know, anything really, but but at least the the people that cover the team. Uh, to, to have some sort of idea of like what was the process that went into this? Like why why are you just having surgery for an injury that you sustained in the 2021 ALDS? Uh, why did Jordan Alvarez start a game where he tweaked something in his oblique during batting practice? So, you know what what is and could can you take a, have Michael Brantley hold up a, a, a today's newspaper uh, just so we can establish proof of life? Um, there's just so much that goes that that is un, that is that is shrouded in darkness that that doesn't really feel like it needs to be. I mean, we're not talking about you know war war plans, you know, or you whatever. You know, we're we're not we're talking about baseball players. So so the Astros didn't exactly help themselves this week when when all of this goes down the same day. No, and, and the way they handle it, I, I on some level I understand because you want to keep things close to the vest, but. When you have your skipper out there and he's having to answer questions about it and he's like, well, I don't know. And even if I could tell you, that would violate HIPAA. So why not ask the trainer? And then the trainer said, it's just, they make it a little bit more too complex for their own good. Like it doesn't need to be that they're, they're very much the new England Patriots when it comes to the health of their players. Like they, they, they make things harder. That's a metaphor that could go deeper, deeper than I think any of us would care to admit. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's, they've invited, they've invited a whole lot of, of questions and attention that that they didn't necessarily need to do. So the big fella is going to be shut down for a while, 
Uh, we know McCullers is now done for the season. We expect Urquidy to be back around the All-Star break, and Dana Brown says Michael Brantley's doing well. He, he's running and in, in doing things that baseball players are supposed to be doing. Uh, do you? When do you expect this team to be at full health? Uh, August. Um, you know, I think I think come the trade deadline. You know, after the trade, when the trade deadline is over, with the exception of Lance McCullers and Luis Garcia, obviously, I think I think that's when that's when you'll start to see a full strength Astros team kind of get ready to make make sort of not a final push, but but really kind of start to put it. You know have everyone healthy and and start to put it together james the astros are fine but what a week for leads um oh, look i'm starting to get more invested in this team because ricky fowler my favorite golfer who just went out and shot the u.s open record low round yesterday is hopeful of becoming an investor and they've been taken over by the san francisco 49ers can you explain to me what's going on over there I think I think it's the it's the welcome to Wrexham effect, and you know JJ Watt is is a minority owner in in Burnley. Um, I think this is the I think this is the new passion project, you know, for for a lot of athletes that have disposable income, uh, because you know Leeds is definitely a disposable income project. <laughs> um, but they're they're a huge team that that has so much financial potential that hasn't been it, it was on the way to being realized and then they hired an american life coach to manage the team and it it was the opposite of ted lasso uh, was, that, that was the jesse marsh experiment so i think it's it's just um, now now this is becoming because there's so many english soccer teams there's that uh it's it's just kind of becoming the new, this is, I don't know, you might have played Golden, I, I played GoldenEye in college. Uh, now apparently the thing to do is, is buy a soccer team. Well, kind of along those lines, do you think this new wave of it, because we've seen it not just with soccer teams, but it's been a thing, yeah, like guys investing in these, you know, endeavors, do you think that's going to be successful or do you think in 10 years we're going to sit there and go, man, remember all those athletes that invested in those teams? That didn't work out. Well, I, I think I think how the team is run is going to is going to play more of a role uh, in how we look at it ten years. Because I mean, like if you look at look at the top teams um, in England, you know, Manchester City is is you know basically like it's, it's Saudi it's Saudi Arabian like oil money. Uh, Newcastle is the same way, and they you know I, I saw a thing is like how do you explain. Newcastle's resurgence because they were in the championship in the second division not that long ago, and I'm like, are we really getting? Are we trying to complicate things more than they have the Saudi money and a really good manager like that? I mean, that's that's pretty much what it comes down to. Um, so I think I think if if Leeds gets back to the Premier League, uh, you know, then then that's gonna that's gonna be an investment that pays off. But it's a really hard league to get out of, and so I I think that. The, the success of of Wrexham and of Leeds United and whatever Burnley, you know, I I, I think if if athletes are going to continue to to put money into it, then you know if, if you if you see a bunch of athletes that are like, oh man, I did that and I lost all my money, uh, then I think you'll see that wave end pretty quickly. So it, I think it depends on on the success of of Burnley and Wrexham and Leeds United. I suppose I could ask you an Astros question, so I guess I'll ask you this I mean, one. that would be... Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, I, I'm not telling you how to do this. 
but I'm, I'm telling you that I wouldn't be mad if you actually asked an Astros question. So I have one. <laughs> Here it is. Um, we talked. The Astros talked about you know going back down to a five-man rotation, and that was going to be the plan. And in less than a week, they've already put Blanco back in and pushed Hunter Brown back a day. So. I guess, Mike, I understand doing that. I don't have any problem with it. I just don't understand why they even mentioned shortening the rotation anyway. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and I think it has more to do with – because when you're relying on, on guys that were in the minors last year uh, and that are, that are making maybe their full-season debuts, like, like J.P. France and, and Hunter Brown – you're, you're starting to deal, and I know the whole Verducci effect, and you, you don't throw more than 30 innings than you did the previous year. That's been sort of debunked. But you still have to take care of their arms. Like, you can't go out there and, and turn them into Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. Uh, and, you know, we, I think we all know who the manager was when 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 Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor uh, were dealing with injuries. Dusty Baker. So, yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, so, I, you know, I... I, I don't know why they would say, like, yeah, we're going to go back to a five-man rotation. And then well, Lance McCullers is out for the year, like we kind of all figured would happen, and, and now you've got to go back. Like, I don't know if it's the – I don't know what the gamesmanship is. Like, what's the what's the, strate- what's the strategy in saying, oh, yeah, we're going to go back to a five-man rotation, and then, and then 48 hours later you have six guys that are going to be in your rotation. I, I don't – there's so much about what the Astros are doing now that I'm like, I, I, I know that you did this, but I can't figure out why. We're talking with James Yasko. He's the co-host of the Lima Time Time podcast. He's also a contributor to the Houston Chronicle. He also loves the soccer. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. I'm going to ask you another Astros question. Is that okay? Uh, that's fine. Yeah. All right. I'm just double-checking. The bullpen. It's had its moments. For the most part, it's pitched well. And it, it, and a lot of the guys in the pen have pitched very well, in fact, this year. And, and last season, it was a historic pace, so it's hard to compare to that. But there's a couple of guys in the pen that have been struggling more than the rest. Are you concerned at all about the Astros' bullpen, or do you think it will just figure itself out? I, th- I think we've seen a lot of regression uh, in the last in the last week or so. <clears throat> um, you know, May- Phil Maton was was pitching at a, at an absolutely unsustainable rate, uh, and and it got a little less sustainy uh, here here in the last few days. Uh, Ryan Presley is, I mean, like pitchers go through um, go through slumps as well, streaks and slumps, and you know, especially when you're getting into uh, you know, when when you're dealing with a six-man rotation where you've got a lot of rookies, um, you know, you don't have guys going out there and giving you seven seven innings strong like like Framber and I know Hunter Brown did the other did the other night as well. But there's just sometimes you're just not feeling it, and that happens to pitchers as well. Like you cannot ask a a pitcher to be perfect 65 times in a in a season. Like you're it, they're going to be. They're going to be just fine 50 times, and then they're going to have a few games where it, it kind of goes sideways. And um, you kind of have to look at an overall. Yes, you have to look at you know how much did they pitch in the last you know however many days, and there are ways to keep track of that. But I mean, these are these are things that that happen, and it's super annoying. Um, you know, when when Ryan Presley makes makes one mistake, and it punishes you know the entire team when, except for Kyle Tucker, you know nobody could 
freaking hit, you know, the Nationals pitcher, which is frustrating on a lot of levels. But baseball is a frustrating game. So when you're looking at bullpen, you kind of have to take a wide-angle view of, of, of sort of, you know, if, if you're nitpicking every single appearance, then you're going to drive yourself insane. One more before we let you go. And I'm glad you brought it up because it, it feels like the, the lineup has been inconsistent and has not played to its potential. And I think that's safe to say this year because in a lot of those uh, games – They've had opportunities, and, and yes, the bullpen has failed them, but the they're only scoring a run, right? So yeah. the lineup has not been very good. And I want to talk about Alex Bregman because he's a notoriously slow starter. But it's June 16th, and we're still getting over performances from Breggs after that little run in May where it looked like he had turned a corner. When you're watching Bregman play, what are you noticing? I, I think there's there's a little bit of of knowing, uh, you know, if, if you're Bregman, um, this is the the farthest the Astros have been back uh, in the division, you know, this late in the season since Bregman has come into the majors. I mean, he he made his debut in 2016. That's that's sort of the last time the Astros were in this position in which they were looking up at somebody in the middle of June. So with, with Bregman, knowing that Jordan Alvarez is out, knowing that Altuve missed the first quarter of the season, knowing that he doesn't have Carlos Correa you know, in the lineup, I think, and knowing that Jose Abreu is struggling, I think he's putting way too much pressure on himself, and he's trying to win every game, every single at-bat. Uh, and, and so you, I think you're seeing pressing with, with Bregman just because this is a, a situation he's not used to hitting 245 or whatever he's hitting. Uh, and he's certainly not used to being three and a half games back on in the middle of June. So I, I think you're seeing a lot of Bregman putting, trying to put the offense on his shoulders, and, and ultimately just kind of like crumbling under the weight of that. James, you never crumble under the weight of coming on this show, having to deal with questions from both myself and the producer extraordinaire Dawson Islow. Thank you for that, bud. You always rise to the occasion. You're the real MVP of this show. And my my left eye is swollen shut for some reason. I have no idea what's going on. So I, I just want to I just want to put that out there. I don't, not that I need I don't need medical attention. I just want to I just want to say I did this whole thing looking out of my right eye. And I, I yeah. No, oh, well at least you're transparent about your injury, unlike the Astros. Thank you for yeah, your so time, I, bud. I throw I throw HIPAA to the wind. Thank you, buddy. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. Poll question of the day. How do you feel about the record low scores in the first round of the U.S. Open? Oh, man, it is a battle, D'Lo. Have you checked in on these results, bud? You've come up with a poll question that has divided. Yeah, let's hear the results. Southwest Louisiana. Right now, 28% of you say put pins in the bunkers. 28% of you say don't have an opinion. 
24% say I love it. More birdies. 20% say it will be tougher today. Whew, it's a battle, bud. It's a battle. I'm only a little bit disappointed in the 28% that don't have an opinion. Um, put that there as a trap, and people fell into the trap. It's okay, though. <laughs> Let's get to some comments. Ralph on Twitter says, this definitely does not have a U.S. Open vibe to it. I don't mind when one or two guys go low, but yesterday was ridiculously easy for most of the field. Once a year, I need carnage, and par is a great score. Doesn't look like this will be the year. It's still early. Still early. They're going to work on making the course tougher. Steve, a.k.a. Salty Steve, the USGA will not put water on that course the next three days. By Sunday, the greens will be harder than the Ten Commandments and scores will be higher than giraffe horns. Well, he didn't mean it, but I actually thought of another idea there. Let's dig lakes in front of all the greens overnight, <laughs> fill them. Now we have more difficult course. He'll see. Izzel says, if you can't shoot under 100 on this course, your opinion difficulty is irrelevant. That being said, I'm shooting 115, he says. <laughs> uh, good comments so far. Keep those bad boys coming. Once again, a pair of 62s, the lowest U.S. round, U.S. Open round ever, and we had two of them. Two of them. Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley yesterday. But if you go past those guys... There's half a dozen guys that shot really well. If you really take a look at the leaderboard, you go past the top seven or eight guys, Dawson, it looks like a U.S. Open leaderboard. So explain that. Uh, I don't know. So there's, let's see. There are 25, somewhere around 40 guys under par. Uh, you don't see 40 guys under par after the first round of U.S. Open I'm often. not talking under par. I'm talking about guys that are like three strokes under par. Right, but 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 under that's I'm saying compared to a regular U.S. Open, that's just a really really high number. And you've got you got a, a ton of guys at three under, two under, one under, and then yeah, I mean there's a few guys who separate themselves, but that's not very different from a regular tournament. What you see, you know, there's always going to be a couple guys who play really really well, put up big numbers, and not everybody is. But I think the overall difficult. I mean, again, it is. Would it's, you feel the same way if Bryson DeChambeau was your leader at three under? I guess that's my point, because I wouldn't feel like the course was playing all that easy if you just took off the, the, the top six guys. Yeah, but my point there would be the way usually golf feels like because that. Because you love to debate. I understand. Go, go ahead. I mean, we could disagree. It would be a quick show, though. We'd have to try to find an hour and a half there. But no, it, usually what you're going to see in a tournament field is the the leader score is usually not indicative of how the field's overall playing. There's always going to be Correct. a handful of guys that separate, but it's overall like where is the middle third? Like where is that middle group of guys? And in a usual U.S. Open, that middle group would be from two to four, five over par. Mm -hmm. And to this this week, they're from two under to one over or even. And so I think that's your big difference there. And I'd have to pull up last year's numbers to see, but. I can promise you didn't have 40 guys under par after the first round at Brookline. So I'm, I'm not saying yeah, no, that. I'm not saying that. Yeah, it's you not like me. it's not disastrous. Again, we don't have to you know dig lakes, but that would be fun. 
And I do think it's going to play much more difficult today. But, yeah, I don't think it's – but I am part of that group that loves to see these guys tested. And I saw some different takes of people who think that true golf fans like to see low scores and it's only casual fans that like to see the carnage. I I disagree fully with that. Yeah, I I disagree with that. Um, And, again, I think, like, we have chances to see guys go low every week on the PGA Tour. Like, the the Travelers Championship next week, you'll see a lot of low scores in any given tournament. I think the U.S. Open and, and these special ones should be reserved to try. Again, yeah, I like the idea. I like it. I like a U.S. Open winning score to be like two under par. Even par would be. If, if the winner of the tournament was even par and everybody else was over par, I would feel happy about it. I know the golfers might not feel the same way, and some fans wouldn't, but that's, uh, that's what I like to see. And obviously you're not going to see that this week unless a uh, hurricane rolls through Southern California. No, it's not going to be your typical, but I, I just – Colin Morikawa is one of the world's best golfers. He's plus one, by the way, on, on this course. Yesterday, that played so easily. Patrick Cantlay, plus one. Brooks Kepka plus one. I mean, yeah, you'll always have guys. You can't have everyone play well. In the well, same no, day, but these are guys that people thought were contenders. Cameron Young, plus two. So Jordan Spieth, plus two. Patrick Weed, plus two. Masayama, plus two. So my, my point is, I understand the people being upset because there's a pair of 62s. I understand all of that. But some of the world's best golfers had their lunch handed to them yesterday still at the U.S. Open. And guys that were betting line favorites to win the United States Open struggled and shot over par yesterday. So let's not pretend like it's the John Deere classic, shall we? That's all I'm asking. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that it's playing to the U.S. Just Open a standards. Major straight to the John. It's a fantastic event. Just a major straight to the John. You've Deere been Classic. there before. You spent, I haven't spent been. a lot of time at the John Deere Classic. No, I enjoy watching it though. But it's not right. It, obviously, the course layout and the way it played still frustrated many of a great golfer yesterday. That's all I'm saying. To make it out like you know that everyone you know was having a field day. Jason Day, plus three, by the way. Adam Scott, plus three. Justin Thomas, plus three. So, I'm just saying, there's a lot of guys that struggled yesterday and didn't even get under par for their round. Keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. we got to take a timeout. When we come back, Ryan Schumpert will join us Talking Tennessee Volunteers Baseball. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette. 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The LSU Tigers face off against the Tennessee Volunteers at the College World Series tomorrow night, and you can catch all the action live right here on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Pre-game begins at 5.30, first pitch is set from Charles Schwab Field at 6 o'clock. That's live LSU baseball from the College World Series on Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. And to give us a preview of that highly anticipated matchup between a pair of SEC teams, 
is a man who covers the Tennessee Volunteers. Man, man, man makes a living covering college athletics. That's not a bad job, let me tell you about that. Ryan Schumpert joins us now, who covers the Tennessee Volunteers for Rocky Top Insider. Ryan, good morning, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, and I think you nailed it right on the head. Not not a bad job getting the, the right about some college sports for a living. And certainly uh, that feels amplified when you're headed out to Omaha for a college World Series and what's just an, an awesome event to cover. I can't wait to make my way up there. I'll be leaving today. I've never been to Omaha, so it'll be an interesting experience. I can't wait to uh, be there, at least for the first couple of games, covering LSU. But let's talk about this Tennessee team. You know, last year, the great season, regular season, SEC championship, SEC tournament championship, number one overall seed. They don't make it to Omaha. And along the way, a lot of people... Uh, took a lot of joy in the fact that they didn't get there because Tennessee had become kind of the villains of college baseball and and had no problems with that. How much different is this year's team compared to last year's team in their mentality, their mindset, and their personality? They're a lot different. Uh, Almost 180, and I think a lot of games, especially in the postseason, uh, the umpires have been kind of geared high, thinking, all right, this is the same Tennessee team of last year, and you know we have to not let anything get out of hand. And you've seen some early warnings in games, and uh, really, it's kind of played to Tennessee's advantage because this team isn't like this, and it isn't like that at all. And uh, Clemson center fielder, who was a star, got ejected for basically nothing—just a, a little bit of talk running off the field uh, after they got out of a double, or got double play to get out of a bases loaded jam. I think the twelfth inning of that game in the regional, and ten, no one on Tennessee even knows what the guy said. And he got ejected. So I think that kind of shows the reputation of last year's team. Um, but it, that this team is really nothing like that. And I think you just look first at who the players are. And Tennessee lost 10 guys in the MLB draft. They replaced eight uh, guys in, their, in the field in the batting order. And a lot of those guys just don't have the same personality. I mean, Christian Moore, who was a freshman and played last year's team, has a little bit of that edge to him. Uh, but a lot of those main guys are more quiet guys and certainly don't have quite the attitude uh, that last year's group had, or even really the year before in 2021. A lot of those guys had uh, who left for uh, professional baseball after that season kind of had that attitude too. And there just isn't a ton of those guys on this team. Um, And I think Tony Vitello himself has done a good job. I know it's been a conscious effort for him to kind of dial it down, and I think emotions ran a little too hot for him at times last season. He's a very fiery guy. He's a very competitive guy. But I think he's done a good job both in games and with the umpires for the most part of dialing it down the season. There's been a few exceptions. Um, and then both with his team when they struggled early in the season. He didn't hit the panic button. He didn't press. Uh, he kind of stayed calm and uh, over the course of the year pressed all the right buttons and got Tennessee back to Omaha for the second time in three years. Ryan, how much different is this Tennessee team that LSU is going to face tomorrow night in Omaha in the nightcap compared to the team that the Tigers took two of three from earlier in the season at Alex Box Stadium? I think in some ways they're a lot different just because they've played a lot better down the stretch and all the players, all the coaches will talk about how the Vanderbilt series, which I think was three weeks after they played at LSU, was kind of the turning point and the team started coming together and 
like we just said, it was uh, all new faces and a bunch of transfers that came in. And I think it took time for all that to mesh. But when you look specifically at that series, I'm not sure Tennessee is a ton-ton different. Uh, I think the most notable thing is that and they moved Andrew Lindsay into the weekend rotation as their Friday night guy, uh, Charlotte transfer, and they moved Chase Burns, who had been a weekend starter from his first day on campus into the bullpen. Uh, I think both those guys have been better for it, and the question will be who does Tennessee start uh, on t- Saturday night against LSU? Uh, Tony Vitello was asked about that yesterday in Omaha. Didn't really give a direct answer. He kind of gave off the vibe, and, and this would be my guess that it will be Andrew Lindsay. Uh, he's been the one that's led Tennessee into these weekend series since the Arkansas series, right? I think was that was their fifth SEC series. So that's the difference. Chase Dolander was still in the Friday night spot. Face Paul Skeens in Baton Rouge. Uh, but you look at that series, and certainly Tennessee played poorly in the first half of SEC play. But that was one where, watch that, LSU takes two out of three. Thought LSU was definitely the better team. But I didn't feel like Tennessee just didn't belong on the same field as LSU, which a lot of series against good teams, Florida the next week, it didn't feel like they belonged at the same field. And you really look at it, those first two games that Tennessee lost, those were close games. And the game against Paul Skeens was tied in the bottom of the eighth inning, and Tennessee booted the ball around all of southeast Louisiana and let the game get away from them. And I think that's probably... Uh, where I would point to if you want to look at that series and how is Tennessee different now. Tennessee was just so bad defensively that weekend and really the entire first half of SEC play. They were a very bad defensive team. They made base running mistakes. They really cut that out. I think they have one error in two weeks, two weekends of the NCAA tournament, six games. They've been really good defensively. They haven't been making mistakes on the base pass, and they've really just done the little things a lot better. Ryan, I'm always fascinated this time of year about teams playing related to their expectations. And last year's Tennessee team likely felt some pressure in that postseason, and maybe it didn't work out for them. Do you think this is a group that's playing with the kind of nothing-to-lose mentality since they weren't necessarily projected to be at this point? Or do they think, because of the stature of Tennessee's baseball program and how they've elevated themselves over the last few years, that they're expecting that they were going to be here and they're still feeling the pressure of being there? I think it's a little bit of both. Now, I think they still internally expected to be here, and that was still the goal. You know, once the notion from the team was, all right, they're five and ten in SEC play. It's going to be tough to get in the NCAA tournament, but if we can get there, man, we have the pitching depth to go to Omaha. Like it, we have the talent, we have the bats, we can do it if we get there. But at the same time, I don't think there was a whole lot of external pressure to your point, and I think that has been greatly beneficial for them because I think they have been able to play a lot looser and a lot freer just because of that. Internal expectations, sure, but it's not like last year where the whole country is sitting there waiting for you to lose and they're going to be rejoicing and jumping for joy when you do. And I think Tennessee felt that a little bit last year. And I think that's probably a natural thing. Uh, You saw it with the Tennessee basketball team this year to a T where nobody in the country picked them to beat Duke in the round of 32 and they came out and they played extremely loose. They executed the game plan. They really dominated a good Duke team that everybody project, or a lot of people projected to make the final four. And then in Sweet 16, they played an underdog in Florida Atlantic and they came out and they played tight and they lost. So uh, I think there are some similarities to what Tennessee baseball has done the last two years to that. Um, and certainly the pressure hasn't been as high this postseason, but at the same time, I think there has been a lot of confidence and the expectation from the people inside that program is, all right, if we get in it, we can, and our goal and our expectation is to make it back to the College World Series. 
Well, you mentioned that pitching depth, and I've you know that's been one of the things that's been talked about. This Tennessee team could really make a run in Omaha because not only, even if they lose the first game, they have more arms than a lot of teams. Now, some of those arms maybe weren't consistent the whole year because you mentioned the struggles early on. Um, it, does the combination of the arms that they have and the offense's ability to score at times, is that going to be enough for them to make a run, or do you still have your concerns there? I still have my concerns, and it's largely predicated on the offense and who they have on their side of the bracket. I mean, you know, no bones about it. Facing Paul Skeens and LSU's lineup in game one is a really tough deal. It's a lot harder deal than facing them in a three-game series just because Paul Skeens, what, he, LSU's lost once, I think, with him on the mound this year. Y'all would know better than me. It's a really, really hard task to beat them, and if you're going to climb out of the loser's bracket, you're going to have to get wins over LSU, and you're going to have to get, likely get wins over Wake Forest, too. So that's really challenging, and as good as the pitching has been, I mean, it's been fantastic. They've given up uh, what I believe is 17 runs in two weekends of the NCAA tournament. It's been under three runs a game that they've given up. One of those games went to 14 innings. <laughs> they've hardly broken or hardly had to use everybody today they have available and they've had to be effective for him this season in either weekend. So the pitching is really good. The offense, I think, still leaves a little bit to be desired. To this point, they've been good finding timely hits, timely home runs more than anything. Tuesday didn't. Three-run home runs, one in the, against Clemson in that regional, and then one on Monday night in the uh, Hattiesburg Super Regional Final were absolutely huge. And I think that leads into something that I worry about with Tennessee. is just It's a team that's been very dependent on the home run ball this season, and obviously as they head to a, a ballpark in Omaha that's bigger and a lot more pitcher-friendly. Ryan, we'll wrap it up with this. The ballpark's going to make a difference, obviously, for, for this Tennessee team, but that applies to all the teams, Wake Forest as well, and, and others. So everyone's going to have to make the adjustment to the bigger ballpark there at Charles, Chob, Charles Schwab Field, rather. What's going to be the key for Tennessee to be a dangerous team and upset the apple cart, so to speak, and make a run in Omaha starting tomorrow night? Well, I think it, I look at two things. and One is look at the guys in the lineup that are in there for their contact hitting. Uh, Christian Scott, Hunter Insley, those are two guys that really, in a lot of ways, you asked earlier how Tennessee is different since the LSU series. Well, they figured out who their starting outfield is, and those are two guys that were in the starting lineup in some games at LSU, but they hadn't submitted their spots there. They've done that now, and they've both hit well over the course of the back half of the season, but neither of them have been particularly hot in the postseason. So can those guys get going? I think probably the more glaring example is Jared Dickey, who hits in the three-hole. To me, he's the best hitter in Tennessee's lineup. He was just on an unbelievable tear, really, the back half of SEC play that he injured his shoulder against Kentucky. Uh, Nothing super serious, but missed about four games. Since he came back, it's not like he's been bad. He had two big hits for him last weekend, uh, but he was, you know, two hits a game there for about five, six weeks, and he hasn't been that since he came back. So getting those three guys going, I think, is a big piece. And then the other one is there's just been a number of hitters, another number of power hitters in this lineup that have been really streaky. Zane Denton, I just mentioned this one. Christian Moore is probably the most glaring example where weekends where those guys are on, they're really, really hard to get out and they hit with power consistently. I mean, in the Clemson Regional, Christian Moore had as many home runs as he did outs recorded, which was four. And one of those outs recorded was a sack fly to the warning track. So uh, he has an ability. He's had about two or three weekends this year where it's like this guy is, I would say, playing a video game, but I can't hit that well in MLB the show. So I'm not even sure that's, that's the right analogy. So 
I look at those contact hitters. Can they get some consistency from them? And then a couple of those streaky guys, can they get one, really just one, but the two would be game-changing to have a big weekend. And all of a sudden, if you do that, I think Tennessee has enough offense to make a deep run along with its really good pitching staff. Ryan, appreciate your time. Brother, thank you so much. Can't wait to uh, meet you in person this weekend up in Omaha. Be safe on your travels and uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks. Same to you on being safe on your travels. Appreciate you guys having me on. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Good stuff there from Ryan Schumpert. I man delivered the goods. And he was very honest about what Tennessee's fallback, you know, what could be their downfall here at the College World Series. And he also, what I found interesting, and we've noticed this from afar, is that the, how would we describe this? The boisterous attitude that the personality of the team had last year has not really been all that around this year. So you could tell the skipper has made a conscious effort to make sure his team tones things down because I don't know if they really thoroughly enjoyed um, being the villains and having everyone hate them last year. At first, I thought they did, but obviously the skipper didn't want his team to have all that heat this year, D'Lo. Well, and like we mentioned, it's just extra pressure sometimes. Like I, Unnecessary. And I mean, think about Memphis, too. It's so funny, too, when teams haven't, like, it's okay to be the villain when you've done it already. Like, if the Astros, when they embrace that villain role, it's because they had already been to the top, and they, you know, they had other reasons why they became villains, but... They were already been to the top. When Golden State kind of had that type of thing about them, it was because we're better than you and you can't beat us, and we've proven that. Now we're seeing teams that are like, we're going to be really good, but we're already going to be a villain. It's like, well, you haven't done it yet, so now all you're doing is putting undue pressure on yourself when you haven't even proved that you're that team yet. So I think that's an interesting kind of contrast, and it happened in Tennessee last year, and, you know, look, was Notre Dame extra motivated because it was Tennessee? I don't know, but... I think sometimes that internal pressure, and, and then he mentioned the external pressure that it creates because of the, you know, target you put on yourself. It it, it doesn't. It's not going to make anything any easier. And and I think they learned that. I agree. Poll question of the day: How do you feel about the record low scores in the first round of the U.S. Open? We know D'Lo was not happy. Not happy. I wasn't all that thrilled either. But I think the course is going to fix itself. Okay. of you say, put pins in the bunkers. 27% say they don't have an opinion, Dawson. 24% say, I love it, more birdies. Birdie, birdie, birdies. 
And 21% say it will be tougher today. B-Rad on Twitter says, oh, golf again. Man, I don't even have an opinion. He shared a gift from Pulp Fiction. How do you feel about that? It's not for everybody, but I mean, it's a major championship. It's fun. I say try to get into it. That would be my advice. There we go. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well. Hour two in the books. Hour number three. We'll kick it off with Jacques Doucet of WAFB live from Omaha. That's next right here on The Game. Do you need professional cleaning? From complete home or business cleaning to fire and water disasters, superior contract. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, me, oh, my crawfish pie. Final hour of today's edition of RP3 and Company is, has arrived. Not to worry. We got a great way to end today's show and a great way to end the week. The coaching legend, the man who helped find, develop the 3-4 defense, a man who coached at LSU not once, not twice, but three times and has coached some of the best defensive linemen in college football history. Pete Jenkins will be joining us. The Louisiana line camp returns next week down at Nichols. So we'll be talking with Coach Jenkins coming up. Great conversation on tap. Also, don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. It's about the U.S. Open. Many people were not thrilled about the low scores yesterday there at the Los Angeles Country Club for the host of the U.S. Open. So we asked you, how do you feel about the record low scores in the first round? 28% of you say you don't have an opinion. That hurts Dawson's heart, by the way. My man is crushed right now. 27% of you say put pins in the bunkers. 24% say it'll be tougher today, which I believe it will be. And 21% of you say you love it. You want to see more birdies. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to share those with you before we sign off on today's edition of the show. I'm going to be making the trip up to Omaha starting today. We'll be broadcasting live on Monday from downtown Omaha for RP3 and company, recapping LSU's first game and looking ahead to their second game on Monday. But our next guest is already there. Man's already hit the ground running. He travels coast to coast wherever he is needed. He is the award-winning sportscaster from WAFB. Jacques Doucet joins us now. Jacques, good morning, brother. How are you? Raymond, good morning, Mr. Bald and Beautiful. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I appreciate that, brother. <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, just a generic question to start things off. I've never covered the College World Series. It's been one of those things that I've never had the opportunity to do so, and I'm going to be able to come up and cover at least the first two games here of this College World Series. For those who are making the pilgrimage for the first time, let's say there's LSU fans that have never had the chance to go and they're going now. What can people expect about the atmosphere in the city and about the atmosphere at the ballpark? 
Well, it's a wonderful place to come to in the summer. Um, It's got a great energy to it. You know, this time of year, the sun's not going down until about 9 o'clock at night. Um, There's a lot of restaurants and um, bars and places to to visit and move in and out of, and there's a cool breeze blowing at night, and um, the people here are very welcoming. They're very... Friendly, and if you're with LSU, they'll probably be even more welcoming and friendly because of what Skip Burtman and um, the Tigers built up in the 90s, all those trips and all those national championships that they had here. Uh, Omaha looked forward to LSU coming because of the food and the friendliness and the parties and all that. And So uh, it's baseball. It's baseball all the time. Uh, obviously, you got eight teams here and eight fan bases here all converging. Uh, they have done a better job of condensing the event. Um, they've cut some of the dead time out of it, so it kind of maybe flows a little quicker than it did in the past. But still, if you're LSU or whoever is trying to win the national championship or does win the national championship, you're going to be here about two weeks. So, uh, but it's uh, and, and I know that you guys. Uh, I mean, I, I left here. I left to come here. What was that? Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever. And I know how hot it is back home, but it, it's. You can come up here sometimes and get some cold weather uh, in the 50s or cooler weather, 70s, but it, it feels like summer right now. The temperatures are knocking on 90 degrees, and it's it's nice and warm, so uh, it'll feel like baseball. Jacques, from your perspective as someone who covers this LSU baseball team as long as you have, we talk about the lineup and we talk about how great Dylan Cruz is and we talk about how great Paul Skeens is. But talk about the job Jay Johnson's done with this team in year number two. Well, Jay Johnson is a baseball junkie. He is a guy, I mean, he said it at a press conference. This is whole. This is my whole life. Uh, he describes Omaha as the greatest place on earth. Um, I don't think anyone is going to outwork Jay Johnson. Um, I think that he is a guy who is up with the times and the current climate of college baseball in which you've got to be watching the transfer portal at all times and who do you want, who do you want to get. I think Blair Barbier, the former LSU great, put it well. Not only do you have guys to choose from, but you might have 40 guys in the transfer portal who can throw 95 miles an hour, and you've got to pick maybe the two or three that you think will translate at LSU. It's just not as simple as just taking whoever. And so – uh, he's a younger coach. Um, you know, I think when Coach Maneri was hired, he was knocking on 50. He was 49 or so. I think Jay just turned 46. So um, he's a younger coach. He's got that uh, young energy. And uh, he inherited some great players. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Coach Maneri left him uh, guys like Dylan Cruz and Trey Morgan. But uh, Jay Johnson has, sub- has complimented that with guys like Paul Skeens and Tommy White. And there's been a lot of pressure on him. I think uh, from the get-go with this team being ranked number one in all the polls across the country, that if they didn't make it to Omaha, there was going to be it was going to be a major disappointment. Whether that's fair or lunacy or not, that's just the facts. And I think he is a little more relaxed, maybe. And there's a maybe a he won't say it, but I think there was definitely a weight off his shoulders to an extent to say, okay, we made it to Omaha, we made it to the College World Series. Now let's see if we can go win the thing. <clears throat> Jacques, you know, we spend so much time talking about the the best players, and you mentioned a few of them that he inherited. But there's a couple guys that have really stepped up, and, and one 
in particular is Cade Beloso. He's an in-state kid, had a lot of hype coming out of high school where he was named Mr. Baseball. And he had a, a good start to his career, but injuries have kind of slowed him down. And look, there was no guarantee that he was even going to make this roster or was going to have a considerable role this season. Yet, Jay has counted on him, and he's been a huge addition in this lineup in particular, especially man in the DH. Yeah, Raymond, um, in 2021, that was Coach Maneri's last year when that team went on a, a run in the postseason and beat Oregon on the road and then went to the Super, lost to Tennessee. Uh, the, the hits were really hard to come by for Kay Beloso. I think he batted something like 221 that year or something like that. And, and down the stretch, I mean, he, he just couldn't get a hit. And then uh, early in, uh, well, before 2022 started, Jay Johnson's first year, he was supposed to be in the five hole and a big part of the team. Well, he did something in warmups to, to hurt his knee and he couldn't go and he was lost for the year with a knee injury. And so you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, all of these new players are coming in out of the transfer portal. There's a lot of star players to begin with. You know, where does Cade Beloso fit? And then he announces he's coming back and you're like, well, maybe he'll be great for team camaraderie. He'll play here and there and uh, be part of the, the team glue, so to speak. But, yeah, really surprising. He's got, I think, what, 14 home runs this year uh, on the season. I think his RBIs are up around uh, 40, 45, something like that. So I think he's got one of the best batting averages on the team. I think his batting average is third or fourth on the team, too. So, yeah, he's been a great story. Uh, his dad, uh, Rodney Beloso, is the Dylan Cruz of tailgating, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> he's out there. Charles all boiling oysters and go cooking all these great dishes out there and stuff and so um yeah you're happy to see guys like like Cade Beloso succeed you're happy to see guys like Alex Malazzo enjoy some success as well after he had some ups and downs and really struggled with the bat his first three years and uh and uh, Hayden Travinsky who's uh, in his fourth year with the team and has you know 10 home runs and 82 at bats there's a lot of you know great stories on this team in terms of perseverance sticking with it and uh, and not going anywhere else. Of course, when you come to LSU, why would you want to come to go anywhere else to an extent when you're part of uh, of all that? Uh, unless it comes to hey, I just really need to play. So anyway, yeah, a lot of great stories. Jacques, when it comes to this specific LSU team, of course the pitching's been discussed all year. But when it came time for it, where it had to be good, it was good enough in the regionals and supers. And now when you head in Omaha, you already talked about the fact that it's look, it's a two week event if you're there as long as you want to be. Um, do you think this is a team that has to win a certain way as far as staying in the winner's bracket because of still some of the, you know, I guess a little bit of uncertainty beyond the guys that they trust? Or is it a situation, too, where this tournament's long enough they can bring guys back eventually and it's really not that big of a deal? Yeah, I think the, the pitching really has improved. I think that they have maybe, um, you know, pruned the tree a little bit and trimmed it down in terms of who they can count on at this time of year. I mean, there was no lower point perhaps in the year than when LSU had a nine-run lead against Mississippi State on a Sunday, and they blew it, and they lost. And at that point, you know, there was some panic amongst the fans. Our pitching is awful. How are we going to make it out of a regional? How are we going to make it out of a super regional? Um, but I think guys like Riley Cooper, uh, Nate, Nate Ackenhausen, uh, you know, Gavin Guidry, uh, has Joe Burrow like confidence and moxie and swagger? I mean, he's the guy that when they punched their tickets to the Super Regional, 
I interviewed him on the field, and I said, man, what's it like to be a true freshman? You're playing with guys like Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz and Trey Morgan. He's like, yeah, it's pretty cool, but I'm pretty good too. You know, I feel like I belong here. And it's those that's kind of confidence that you need. So, yeah, I think that, um, uh, like I said about the format earlier, it's not as spread out as it used to be. It's a little bit different. But, um, you know, for a while it's like, you know, that's what makes baseball so unique and interesting. You know, Paul Skeens is like Joe Burrow. Well, the problem is he does, he doesn't get to play every day like Burrow did. you got to take him out. Because when Skeens pitches and LSU hits, they look like the greatest team of all time. Uh, but with Thatcher Hurd coming along, I mean, he didn't pitch in the Super Regional, but that Oregon performance in which he gave up a couple of home runs, but his breaking ball was nasty. And then, you, and then uh, you know, Ty Floyd's a big a big key to this as well. I mean, Ty Floyd has not eaten up a whole lot of innings the last couple of times he started. His pitch count gets too high, and they got to yank him. Uh, so if he could go deep in the game, that would be a big help as well, obviously. But, yeah, I, I think that they have a lot more that they can depend on in the bullpen than they did, than they did in the past. And, and really, when you're in a three-game series in three days, you got to pitch some guys that, quite honestly, maybe you don't want to pitch. And so – you know, we'll see how it all plays out, and it's a bigger park, obviously, but the guys yesterday said the ball was flying out pretty good, so maybe we'll see some more offense. The offense definitely has gone up a lot in recent years here in Omaha as opposed to beginning when it was a, a graveyard and nobody could, could poke it out. Well, that was going to be my next question, and you kind of already alluded to it there. The, the park, everyone talks about how much bigger the park is, but one of my thoughts this week has kind of been, yeah, but offense is up across all of college baseball. So, sure, it's bigger than some of the parks, and it plays bigger. Um, but I'm not convinced we're not going to see some offense this week, and it sounds like you're thinking maybe some of the same. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the wind, too, if it's blowing in, if it's blowing out. But you know, there's been some discussions with some broadcasters um, you know, off the air and stuff about maybe around 2018, 2019, the, the, the game of college baseball was in a good place, and then maybe now it's become a little too offensive, that there's helium in the ball and that, uh, you know, we're kind of trending back towards the late 90s when they, you know, had to make some changes. Of course, fans like offense. And, um, I mean, there, there are people who enjoy pitching duels and low-scoring games. But, uh, you know, when they really neutered the game and, and, and knocked it down, and, you know, I think LSU had one, one, one year had like 50 home runs or something. Nobody wants to see that. And so I think this year LSU's got 132, 133 as a team. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, like I said, the guys yesterday, it was a warm day. It was about 90 degrees, and they were taking batting practice, and there was a lot of guys whacking it over the fence. So, in the beginning, if you remember, like, 2013 when LSU went, the Alex Breckman, Christian Nabara, Mason Katz that time, there were several guys that hit the ball in the screws, and it just died at the track. And they were like, oh, this is not good. Now, the old Rosenblatt was a, was a launching pad, too, so. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to watch, but I think it'll be a, a fair amount of, of offense. We have to watch the weather, too. It, uh, Saturday is a high weather, uh, is a high rain chance, 65% uh, chance of rain on Saturday. So Tennessee and LSU brought the, the, the rain delays with them, maybe, up, <laughs> up here at Omaha. Hopefully not. Oh, Jacques, I just put my hands, put my face in my hands. When you said that, you, you hurt my soul. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're, you're doing your due diligence as a journalist. Quickly, I only got about 45 seconds. Does LSU get the job done against Tennessee on Saturday and move on to the winner's game on Monday? Yeah, I think so. I think they'll pitch Skeens, although you know Jay's not announcing that. Um, and I think he'll pitch well again, and I, I think LSU will uh, – 
will advance. Tennessee uh, wasn't quite sure. There's a lot more gamesmanship in baseball than there used to be. A lot more kind of football paranoia and uh, secrets. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, I think that LSU gets the victory. And hopefully, Raymond, they play on Saturday, no problem. And, uh, you know, if journalism is looking at the weather app, then uh, I guess that's what I did for you this morning. <laughs> Jacques, appreciate the time, man. Keep up the tremendous work that you're doing with WAFB. I'll see you this weekend, brother. All right, Raymond. Look forward to seeing you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is the epitome of a high roller, constantly making large bets. But by doing that, the minimum bet is a dollar for a win, a dollar for a place, a dollar for a show. So it's essentially a $3 bet. That netted me a cool $6.70. What? Okay, so he's not a risk taker. He's your best bet for sports talk. 19. Hit me. 20. Hit me. 21. Hit me. 22. Don't! Now, back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. This weekend, jam-packed, right? U.S. Open, the beginning of the College World Series in Omaha. Next weekend, though, we're going to have hundreds, actually more than 600 campers down at Nichols. And no, it's not for the Manning Passing Academy. It's going to be for the famous Louisiana line camp. We're talking guys like Kevin Mawai and others help out. And the man who helped create the Louisiana line camp joins us now to talk about his career and about the importance of teaching and developing young offensive and defensive linemen. His career has spanned more than five decades. He has coached at 11 different schools, including Florida, Auburn, Mississippi State, and LSU, not once, twice, but three times for Nick Saban and Ed Orgeron. He won a national championship at Troy back in the 1960s. He's even worked in the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles. The man who founded the Louisiana line camp, the legendary line coach himself, Pete Jenkins, joins us now. Pete, good morning to you, brother. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you for the kind words. That's, that's a really nice intro. I appreciate it very much. You're quite welcome, Coach. Not a problem whatsoever. So let's start off talking about the Louisiana Line Camp. When you first began this all those years ago, you had 45 campers. Now you have more than 600 campers. You're having to turn kids away because this thing sells out. Did you ever think in a million years when you first started this thing back in the day that would have grown to what it is today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Especially after that first year. You know, what we what we decided that, that when we did this camp, you know, Jesse Daigle, who was our running back coach at LSU, and Kenny Farrow, who was our offensive one of our offensive line coaches, we we were going to do this. We thought it would help kids in the state of Louisiana. We thought it would improve line play and and be helpful to the high schools, and also be helpful to us at LSU. And you know, we had we had as you mentioned, we had those. 45 kids that showed up. And our agreement was this was going to be a work camp, work-oriented camp. We were not going to have a swimming period or play touch football at night or things like the college camps do. And we were all doing it at LSU, but we didn't want to do it in this line camp. So we kind of cut our wrist and said, hey, we're going to make this a work camp. Well, we had those few guys show up. We lost money. 
And then the next year, I, I really kind of tried to back out on doing it the next year, but they uh, talked me into it. We did it the next year, and it more than doubled that next year. And it's been going on and on, and, and it's grown into where it is now. And to answer your question, would I ever have thought that? Absolutely not. I'm happy about it, and I'm hopeful that we're really helping guys to achieve goals and to be a part of their success, a part of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love the camp, and I'm dedicated to it. The coaches that we bring in there are the same way. I want to go back even further because you're one of the men that is attributed to helping create the 3-4 base defense. Can you share a little bit of thoughts on that and why did you think that was something that was going to be so wildly effective in college and pro football? Well, I tell you, I probably give a little more credit for doing than than I deserve, to be honest with you, because it was uh, it, it, I certainly didn't come up with it. But, uh, you know, it gave us the multiplicity because people had begun to throw the football, you know, uh, differently and, and better, and, and the game was evolving in that direction. So what it did was give us a couple of extra guys, you know, one that could rush and one that could drop. And we could drop we could drop both of them, which we called ends way back. But they when in the three four we were we were looking for a body type and a skill set that was a linebacker type guy. And so you you could do this. You could rush one and drop one. You could drop both of them and get some maximum underneath coverage. Or or if if you wanted, you could bring both of them and go man to man behind them. So it gave us some versatility. It gave it gave the, the defense some versatility that you know people are still using, and and uh, and it's still you know I think it's probably more popular now. Kind of things kind of cycle. But if you look, uh, people are are playing the three four a great deal all over this country and pro football. You've coached a lot of great players in your illustrious career. You like Leonard Marshall and Marcus Spears, and you even have some of them like Henry Thomas, who helps you out with the Louisiana line camp. Who's the best? (laughs) Or give me a couple. Give me a couple. Don't don't dare ask. Don't don't dare. Let me ask you this, then. Let me ask you this. Who was a guy that you said, "Mm, maybe this kid is going to be on the fence that really kind of blossomed underneath your coaching that surprised you? That's a hard question, too. I hadn't given that a lot of thought, the way you phrase it. Well, you mentioned Henry, and I'll just I'll just talk about him. You know, the guy is um, one of the best, most productive players we ever had at LSU. And then uh, he's a kid out of Houston that played tight end. So we took him because when Jerry Stovall was the head coach at that time, and Jerry had a philosophy he always wanted to sign a kid at LSU out of the greater Houston area because he thought he never wanted to break that string. Well, that particular year, we were not doing very well. Uh, our, our recruiter in that area, in a meeting one morning, we went through the guys that we really wanted, and actually we were second on this guy, third on this guy, guy second on this guy, and Jerry said, well, listening to you, what I assume, you, you really don't think we'll get anybody. And he said, no. And he said, well, oh, I, I just can't, you know, we got to get a guy that's greater Houston. 
to keep that keep that chain going and everything. So he mentioned Henry, and Henry was a tight end, and he mentioned Henry not being big enough to go move inside at any time or fast enough to play tight end. And but what a great kid he was! What a great kid! What a great home he had! What a dependable person he was! Da 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 da. So. Jerry looked at the guy and told him, he said, call him and offer him a scholarship. Well, I raised my hand. I said, well, where are we going to play this guy? And Jerry looked at me and smiled, and he said, he's going to play for you at nose. And and I said, okay, but he can't count against my numbers. <laughs> and Jerry said, okay. Hey, look, little did I know that this guy was going to start in the National Football League 14 years. And, you know, he's got unbelievable uh, – He's got some unbelievable stats. He had a hundred, a thousand and six tackles uh, in the running game, and had ninety three and a half sacks against the pass. And you know that's phenomenal numbers for a nose, even fourteen years of pro football. But uh, he works in the camp. And Henry should have been a coach. He, he uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't go into coaching, but he's a very talented coach. And we, he works in a camp and does such a great job. But I answer that with him. He's certainly not the only one. But I answer that with him because he had never played on defense. He'd been a tight end his whole life. And he walked in there, and I'm telling you, it was like throwing a rabbit in the briar patch. I mean, he just he, he just took off, you know. And uh, man was such a great player for us through the late 80s. And uh and did very well for himself in pro football. we got to take a timeout, but more of our conversation with the coaching legend, Pete Jenkins, coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette, on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company as we're talking with the coaching legend and the man behind the Louisiana line camp, Pete Jenkins, joins us once again. In your great career, you were able to coach under some amazing coaches. I got to ask you, what was it like coaching under Nick Saban? What was it like coaching under Ed Orgeron at LSU? You know, I worked for five different head coaches at uh, LSU. You know, that's one of those records that uh, – nobody cares about or whatever, but it's it's kind of an unusual record. I mean, I had five different head coaches during my 16 years at LSU. I had five different head coaches at LSU, at LSU. So, uh, yeah, it was really, um, it was a study in contrast to a lot of people, a lot of uh, guys, you know, they were all good men. They all, I enjoyed all of them, but, um, you know, Ed has, he has, um, he's Ed, you know, he's Bay Bay. And, um, he was quite different than, than Coach Saban, of course. But, uh, Saban, um, yeah, I, you know, I, he was, he was so, he was great to work for, hard to work for. I mean, at that time, I still, I still spend a couple of weeks a year at Alabama. He still has me over there. And, uh, He's changed a lot since 2000. 
these 23 years have really, uh, you know, they've mellowed him. And I don't mean he's mellow. I don't mean that. I don't think Coach Saban will ever be mellow. But he has mellowed. And he's a much he's a much uh, better guy to work for now than he would than he was in 2000. But um, what a, what a great coach he is, and and he's he's just he, he's done he's done things in the game that as you know nobody else has ever done. And they're trying to kind of move him to the side for Kirby right now, which I I work with Kirby too, and um, I go to Georgia. Every year he has me at Georgia. Uh, every year, and uh, he's uh, he's an awful lot. People ask me about the resemblance of those two, and Kirby's an awful, awful lot like Coach Saban. I mean, spent a lot of years working for him, and uh, so it's it's been interesting. And and working for the Bill Arnspiker was a really interesting guy that I worked for at LSU. Great football coach, great football coach, and Jerry Stovall. Uh, who was, you know, a former player at LSU. And I would say Jerry Stovall was a tremendous recruiter at LSU. And uh, so it was it was interesting. And LSU, I grew up, LSU was my dream job. So as I listened to you talk about it, I was able to realize a dream not once, not twice, but three different times, which I'm grateful and thankful for because I just uh, – I still, if you cut me today, I'm sitting in Baton Rouge right now. I got a place here and a place down in Florida. But if you cut me, I bleed purple and gold. I really do. And I, I've always loved LSU, and I love the people. You know, the, I love the fans. I love the the passion for the game there. And uh, it's just, it's just to me, it's just the greatest place. Saturday night in Tiger Stadium, there's nothing like it. What was it like to finally be able to coach in the NFL and do so under former Eagles coach Andy Reid? Probably the best guy to work for I ever worked for in my life. Uh, you know, Coach Reed's got this look, and, and I guess a lot of people see him on TV, and he has this grumpy look on his face and whatever. You know, you get the idea sometimes a little bit. It's a it's a different than what he really is like. He, he is probably the most fair-minded human being. He, he I, I would say this to you, too. I was with him through some troubled times, not on the field football, but in, within his family. God bless him. Uh, and, you know, you could never tell. Every day he was he, he was so even-keeled. He was the same way every day. Good day, bad day, it didn't matter. He, he was so even-keeled. And it was, you know, it was really great to work for the man. And I would say this to you. The players had such high respect for him, and the coaches loved and respect the guy, respected the guy so much. Uh, I wouldn't take anything from my association with Coach Reed. We're still in touch, and we um, we're still friends. And and I, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really excited about coaching pro football, but I wouldn't take anything for the fact to having to do it. Having done it, and having done it for a man like Andy Reid, I, I just, uh, I, I just think he's probably one of the best I've ever been around in my life, coaching wise. But absolutely one of the best human beings I've ever known. 
Wrapping up our conversation with the coaching legend Pete Jenkins. He's the man who founded the Louisiana Lion Camp, which of course will be going on next weekend down at Nichols State. Coach, I want to shift gears a little bit here and ask you a question about the actual coaching and developing of linemen. You've been doing this a long time. Whether it's your time dealing with high school kids at the Louisiana Line Camp or working as a consultant like you do these days across the country with college programs, what's the main thing or the big thing that you're noticing that these young men are not being taught about or don't know on how to be a successful, dominant lineman? Yeah, you know, that's what I do in the uh, month of January and February is uh, I coach coaches and the I say January, February, and part of March. Uh, I worked. I worked eight universities this year, uh, and I was kind of proud of myself. Actually, I did eight universities in nine weeks, uh, thirty-five nights in the hotel room, uh, and five flights. So it was. Uh, it, I was kind of proud of myself when I got done with it because it was challenging to do. But here's the here's the thing that you mentioned a couple of those things. I think. You know, uh, I think a lot of coaches differ from me a little bit, and not everybody. I don't mean everybody, but, you know, I'm a guy that believes that on defense, your eyes, being in the right place and also being able to sequence your eyes from this place to that place, your, your eyes are so important, and that's where it all starts. Because defense is reaction football. So something has to trigger you. And the thing is, is the optic nerve picks it up. It sends that message and that picture to the brain. The brain tells the body, here's, here's what's going on. And the body's taught how to react. So everything on defense is so contingent upon you having good vision and you having disciplined, disciplined vision. Okay. And then another thing that I, I probably differ for some people, footwork. Footwork is we all go where our feet take us. And footwork is so important to put us in position to make plays. And poor footwork can put you in position that you're, not, you're unable to make plays. So like the camp we're talking about, one of the things that we, we one of the objectives at the beginning of the camp, is that we help help the kids with eye control and discipline. We help them with footwork. We help them with explosion out of the hips and lower back, legs and lower back. We, we do a really good job of teaching safe and efficient tackling because that's something that, that we really, I mean, great defenses tackle well. Great defenders tackle well. And then the other thing is a work ethic. And and we hope that we're saying the same thing that they are and reinforcing what the high school coaches tell. We don't do any scheme. In other words, like I wouldn't teach a kid down there, this is the way we want to play the trap, or this is the way we want to play this block or that block, because his high school coach has got a plan on that schematically. And, and, and so we, we, our goal is to be an asset to the high school coach. If we teach him to use his hands more efficiently, then I don't care what the coach runs, 3-4, four, 4-3, four, that doesn't matter. Whatever he runs, he'll have a better football player. If we teach him to str- 
back out of his hips, legs, and low back effectively, he'll have a better football player. If his eyes are improved, he'll have a better football Does that make sense? I just uh, – we don't want to infringe on the high school. We, we, we want to be part of the solution for them as well as for the kids. So uh, those are some of the – those are the think five things that we really work on on defense down there. And uh, I'll see them again, eye control, footwork, footwork, proper footwork, efficient footwork, explosion out of the hips, legs, and lower back. Everybody on everybody on the football field needs that except the quarterback. He's the only one that's not striking people, okay? And then we, we want them to, to uh, develop a great work ethic. And we just we want to carry that over from what they hear in high school and 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 everything. And then we want them to be a, we want them to be good tacklers, but we want them to be safe and efficient. That makes perfect sorry, sense to me, brother. No, that's <laughs> no, that's great. That's great stuff and great insight. Uh, appreciate you making the time, brother. Enjoy another successful Louisiana line camp. More than six hundred campers are going to be in attendance down there at Nickel State University, and hopefully, all of them will be sponges and be able to take all that knowledge that you and all the coaches that are going to be there will be able to disperse to them. Thank you for your time, brother. Do you mind me saying one other thing, real quick? By all means. I'll make it quick. Uh, one of the things that we don't talk about quite enough is the high school coaches are welcome to come down there at any time. I mean, it, it, it'd be our our pleasure and our honor for them to come down there and watch practice or sit in the meetings and things like that. I mean, I'm, I'm just like to extend that invitation because they they are they are a big part of this too, and and uh, so that's an invitation from me, and uh, we'd be happy to have any of. Them. Coach, appreciate the time, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. We got to take a time out, but when we return, we'll finalize the poll question of the day and get you set up for Kevin Foot and Footnotes. That's all next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. want to take a minute to thank the guests that we had. What a way to finish the week here on RP3 and Company. James Yasko with Lean Time Time Podcast, always bringing about the Houston Astros, some of their struggles, but still overall a moderately optimistic outlook on things. Um, and how about getting a Tennessee preview from Ryan Shumpert? That was fantastic. And uh, that's, of course, LSU's first opponent in the College World Series. They will play them tomorrow night at 6, weather permitting. Uh, we will see. Weather has been an issue before in this NCAA tournament. Jacques Doucet, of course, also live from Omaha, covered the LSU Tigers and previewed it for us a little bit more. And then lastly, what an interview there with Pete Jenkins, two-part interview with the legendary football coach, uh, talking all things offensive line play and uh, defensive line play, just everything, fantastic. Uh, our guy RP3 is on his way. He has begun the voyage to Omaha. 
How about that? He's going to be covering the first couple games, at least here for the LSU Tigers in the College World Series. So he is now on his way there, and um, it should be an exciting weekend. It'll get going today. Once again, Oral Roberts is playing TCU in the first game, Virginia-Florida tonight. Then tomorrow afternoon, we'll see Wake Forest play Stanford, and then the nightcap and the final game of round one will be LSU and Tennessee. And then, of course, the games after that, it's all going to kind of depend. Now, the schedule's set up, but, of course, depending on who wins, who loses, will determine who goes into which slots. And from there, you'll kind of have this uh, this tournament play out, double elimination, and uh, we will see how it goes. We did have a poll question of the day. Some of you didn't like it, but, I mean, I think it was necessary. The U.S. Open began yesterday, and the scores were uncharacteristically low. So our question was, how do you feel about the record low scores in the first round of that U.S. Open? 26% of you said it's going to be tougher today. 26% said we might as well just put the pins in the bunkers. 18% said they love it, more birdies. And 30% don't have an opinion. A little disappointed that the don't have an opinion crew ended up taking the lead and winning this one. Um, you know, overall, I think the scores are going to be higher today. I don't think there's any situation in which the course is as ideal as it was. Again, LACC and the officials in the USGA are going to do their diligence to try to make it a little bit more tough. You're going to see tougher pin positions you're going to see tougher, uh, you know, you're going to have the par threes lengthened a little bit with some of the tee boxes that can be moved back. They will be moved back. Um, so I would not nearly, I don't think you'll see another 62. Um, I don't think you'll see anything near that. And I actually kind of suggested, I think the leader at the end of today's round is maybe 10 under. Now, if Shoffley or Fowler goes on a major run today, then yeah, they're, they're already in position. But I don't think that's going to happen, especially considering those guys have to play in the afternoon wave. And we do expect the course to firm up. Um, so that's all kind of in play here, but I know a lot, you know, and we, we joked about some of the comments on Twitter, people who don't enjoy it, but I will say, um, the U S open something special about that, that event and, um, it's history and kind of, we'll see down the stretch. If some of those guys can step up to the occasion, it's kind of a mixture. The big names are showing up at the top of the leaderboard of, of course, a couple of guys who maybe are big names, but haven't won in a while, like Ricky Fowler and somewhat in majors, at least Rory McElroy. So, uh, I'm excited to see kind of how that's going to go and, and, and who's going to kind of take the reins. Um, had an eventful week here on the show. We covered a lot, and the Astros are still in full swing. I'm headed to Houston tonight to catch uh, a couple of games in their series against the Reds, so I'm excited about that. J.P. France on the mound, the New Orleans native Archbishop Shaw High School product, will be pitching tonight, um, and that Reds team is hot, and, and they're going to be fun to watch, so I'm excited to see. You know, look, the bullpen's had a little bit of its struggles lately. The lineup is what I'm more concerned about. But Jose Abreu's starting to turn it on if Altuve gets it going. And then the guy I'm looking for, man, maybe LSU being in the College Road Series in Omaha is going to be the motivating factor and the, the, the rejuvenating thing that Alex Bregman needs to get going. The, the former LSU Tiger just, just feels like he's been a little bit stagnant at the plate, and I'm, and I'm looking for him to break out. Maybe this is the weekend. Maybe he has a big weekend uh, in honor of his Tigers that are back in Omaha. So that's it. That'll do it for this week of RP3 and Company. Thanks to everybody who tuned in throughout the week. We'll be back on Monday, and RP3 will be doing the show live from Omaha. So until then, be safe out there and be kind to one another. And Kevin Foote and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.